Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. When teaching the first half of world history, I always do a little section on Augustine. My focus is on how he was an important theologian who shaped Christian understandings of war and even influenced Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as seen in his letter from Birmingham jail. The fact, though, is that I could have an entire course on Augustine. Such was the breadth and depth of his thought. Dr. James Lee in his new book, Augustine, the Mystery of the Church, published by Fortress Press in 2017, explores one aspect of Augustine's thought, his ecclesiology. In this carefully written and researched book, James shows how Augustine's understanding of the church was Christ-centered, and as such, it was not simply an invisible communion of believers isolated from each other, but also has a visible communal aspect and is active in this world. This book is therefore highly suited to anyone interested in Augustine's thought and ecclesiology and will work well in a graduate seminar. I hope you'll enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. James Lee about his new book, Augustine and the Mystery of the Church. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Frank. Great to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you. So I wonder, I mean, I know who you are. We've, uh, for our listeners' sake, uh, uh, Jim and I are old old colleagues. We've met multiple times in some projects we've done together. But could you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, I'd be happy to. So uh, I am assistant professor of the history of early Christianity in the Perkins School of Theology in Southern Methodist University, which is located in Dallas, Texas. So we get a lot of sun most of the year. Um, I've been in this position for six years now. And prior to that, uh, I received my PhD in the history of Christianity from the University of Notre Dame. And before that, I did a master's degree at the Catholic University of America. And uh, before that, I was an undergraduate also at Notre Dame. So I'm what they call a double domer. No, excellent. I hadn't heard that yes. term, and, I, and I'm a Hoosier, but I'm more <laughs> okay, from central great. southern Indiana than the north. That's right. Wonderful. Wonderful. Right. Excellent. So how did you get to Notre Dame? Well, uh, it was a long, circuitous route, in fact. When I was in, uh, in high school, I had some friends who ended up studying at Notre Dame, and I went on a visit, and uh, I was just very moved by the campus. It was the only Catholic university that I applied to, and in fact, at the time, I was not Catholic myself, so I didn't expect to go to a Catholic school. Uh, and I remember I didn't even know who was on the dome at the time. And someone had to tell me that's that's Mary. Uh, and Notre <laughs> Dame means Our Lady. So that was a right. a, a new fact for myself to learn. Um, but it, it ended up getting a, a great offer to go there. And it was there that I ended up falling in love with the study of theology. Uh, that was the first time that I was exposed to theology as an academic discipline. And uh, instead, uh, you know, I, I had planned to be a, a medical doctor because uh, I'm a a Korean American, second generation Korean American. <laughs> and uh, like a good Korean American son, I was planning to be a medical doctor. But um, I became interested in theology. And I had a wonderful professor who happened to be a world renowned scholar of, of Augustinian studies. And he ended up becoming my dissertation advisor. So I was very fortunate to meet him as an undergraduate. Oh, excellent. And I, I just have to say, since you were talking about the architecture, um, were you yes. drawn also by Touchdown Jesus? Oh, yes, very much. Uh, that, that's, a, that's very compelling to see Touchdown Jesus. And on the other side of the library, some people may not know this, but I always point this out to my students. There's a statue of Moses, and it's called First Down Moses because he has his finger in the air uh, saying that there's only one God. So they call that First Down Moses on the other side of Touchdown Jesus. Oh, excellent, excellent. Um, for, our, for our listeners, if you're not familiar, just just Google Touchdown Jesus, and it will you'll see what we're talking about. Um, that's right. But, but going back for a moment, so— your book then is Augustine and the Mystery of the Church. Is that coming out yes. of your dissertation research then? Yes, exactly. So the book is a revision of my dissertation, which I wrote at Notre Dame. I uh, revised it after getting a job at SMU in Dallas, and I, I worked on taking different parts of it out and adding different parts. So um, for the revision of dissertation takes a lot of work. Um, I took out a lot of the, the Latin that was sort of unnecessary, some of the secondary literature that was unnecessary. And then I also added a chapter to it, the chapter on uh, the two cities and the city of God. 
which was a new research that I conducted while I was at SMU and uh, subsequently published as an article in Augustinian Studies as well. So uh, the book that, uh, that was published by Fortress is uh, a revision of my dissertation. I do have to, to ask, though, is there such a thing as unnecessary Latin? <laughs> Not in my view. I think Latin is always necessary. And, and I wish that uh, in our education system today, we kept teaching our young people Latin because it's very valuable. Right, right. Yep, yep. I guess they learned some of the stems and things, but yeah, not how to actually uh, write and so forth. So, sure. you know, your book is on Augustine and Augustine. Uh, it's funny, actually, I teach, um, I'm teaching the first half of world history this semester. And yes. I always talk about Augustine. Great. And the, I'm glad the to hear I that. Bring, oh, thanks. Yeah. He only gets about seven <laughs> minutes, but, but, you know, world history. <laughs> but I always, I tie him in using Martin Luther King because Martin Luther King in his prison yes. li- di- uh, letters talks about yeah. Augustine. Um, right. um so, but I, I look at him from the from this kind of issue in terms of the the justness of law and so forth. But sure. you're looking at him a little bit differently. So yes. I wonder if, though, for our viewers who who are not, or I'm sorry, not viewers, our listeners, um, mm-hmm. could you tell us a little bit who was Augustine and what mm-hmm. were some of the ideas and events that shaped him? Sure. So I look at uh, Augustine from the perspective of a theologian and a church historian, and I teach courses in church history. And um, he, he really ends up becoming a, a central figure in the first half of the course that I teach on church history. Um, many consider Augustine to be the most important theologian in the history of Christianity. Uh, his influence is far and wide. Uh, the, the church historian Yaroslav Pelkin famously said that the history of Western theology since the Council of Orange in 529 is a series of footnotes to Augustine. And that in the medieval period, the question was not, if you were going to cite Augustine as an authority, but which Augustine you would cite. Uh, he was so important as a, as a frame of reference. So um, Augustine is widely considered the, the most important theologian in the history of Christianity. He is uh, influential because of his works. He was an incredibly prolific author. He uh, composed over 100 treatises on various topics, letters and sermons, commentaries on scripture. And of his existing works, we have over 5 million words in Latin which, as I like to remind my students, is many more words in English, once you translate that. Um, but uh, we're still actually finding more works. In, in, the, in the late 90s, in fact, we found some sermons that we believe to be authentically Augustine's. So uh, those are wow. of the, the works that exist. And his secretary, Pisidius, famously said that if anyone claims to have read all of Augustine, he must be lying, because it would be impossible <laughs> to do so in one's lifetime. Oh, wow. So, no, that's mm-hmm. impressive. Yes. And well, one thing, and, and this is why I can bring him up in history classes, it's not just in a sense that he was a thinker. This was someone who was right. really in the midst of a lot of event, very important events that were yes. going on, and those shaped his his ideas. So I wonder if you That's could tell right. us you know, what a little bit more about the ideas and events that are, are kind of shaping him. Certainly. Well, there are many important events. Uh, Augustine was born on November 13th, 354. So this was after Constantine had made Christianity— a legal religion so that that happened in 313 with the council of, uh, of the edict of milan and um so constantine had made it christianity legal this was really a declaration of religious freedom but christianity did not become the official religion of the roman empire until 379 which was when augustine was about the age 25 or so so uh, that was a really important moment when the roman empire uh, was no longer pagan but had become in fact christian under the Emperor Theodosius. So that was a very important event. But interestingly, at the time, Augustine was not a Christian. Um, He was, in fact, living a a rather wild life. Uh, He was born to a pagan Roman father, whose name was Patricius, and to a devout Catholic mother, and her name was Monica. And as I always like to point out, uh, uh, Patricius was of Roman lineage, so he was properly what we would call Italian, uh, but Monica was North African, so she came from a Punic or Libyan origin. In other words, she was indigenous to North Africa. So Augustine himself was actually of a mixed background. That's what, at least what we would call it today. So I, I like to bring this up because I'm a Korean-American, and my wife is Caucasian, so our daughter is a mixed background. And, and so I just like to raise that, that Augustine himself came from this kind of mixed background. Um, he was— Yes. Sorry, go ahead. I was gonna, oh, yeah. I was going to say, well, and, and I, I certainly, uh, you know, empathize with that. Our, our sons are both uh, yes. are Filipino and, and white. So. Right, right. 
Exactly. And that, that has an impact on your life. And so I always like to bring that up. Uh, at the time, of course, North Africa was essentially a kind of colony of the Roman Empire. And it was uh, an important place because of the port cities that were there and the fertile farmland. And it was there that Augustine was born. He was born in Tagaste, North Africa, which is present day Algeria. And uh, his father was uh, probably worked uh, as a land. He, has a, he was a landowner, but he was not particularly wealthy. So Augustine uh, was lucky to find a patron by the name of Romanianus who paid for his education. And as a student, Augustine was very gifted. So from a young age, he was recognized already to be quite brilliant, even though he struggled with Greek. But I can't blame him for that. We all struggle with Greek. Sure. So um, <laughs> he had a hard time with that. But uh, he eventually showed uh, that he had great promise as a student, and he went to Carthage to uh, study, go into what we would call secondary studies. And uh, it was there that he he had a great reputation for his learning and his gifts as a student. He was also quite gifted as a speaker. So he decided to take up the study of rhetoric, which is essentially the art of speaking. And in the ancient world, rhetoric was actually a form of entertainment. Because people, instead of going out to the cinemas to watch movies like we do, they would go out to hear people speak and engage in arguments. So Augustine was a gifted rhetorician, and eventually he became quite famous for his ability to uh, engage in public speaking. So I like to tell my students that Augustine was sort of the first movie star of coming out of North Africa because he was so popular as a rhetorician. And um, during this time, though, interestingly, he was not a Christian, as I said, his father was a pagan Roman. His mother, Monica, was a devout Catholic. Um, but he himself was not baptized as an infant, which was a common practice during this time in North Africa. And so he, he wandered away from a Christian lifestyle. And he says that uh, when he was a young man at secondary school, uh, he was basically living a, a, a lustful lifestyle. Um, and he called himself a, a cauldron of lusts. Is a very famous phrase that he used to describe himself. And he says he was more in love with being in love. And I think a lot of young people can probably relate to that. Um, he also had a mistress while he was studying. And he eventually had a child out of wedlock. He's the only Latin church father that we know of who had a child. So that's another uh, important distinction of Augustine. His son's name was Adeodatus, which means a gift from God. And um, so Augustine had this child. Again, this was not too uncommon that he had a mistress. Uh, a lot of people, in fact, during this time who were well-educated would, would engage in this practice. But uh, Monica obviously was not very happy with this, and she prayed for his conversion, and she prayed for him for about 30 years. Um, and her, her prayers were very influential um, because eventually it led to his conversion. Now, another important person in Augustine's life, speaking of Christians who had an important uh, an impact on his life, was St. Ambrose, who was the Bishop of Milan. And after Augustine had become a, a, a famous rhetorician and he decided to take up a teaching post as a professor of rhetoric in Milan, it was there that he encountered Ambrose for the first time. And Ambrose was important because he showed Augustine the sophistication of Christianity, and in particular, the, the sophistication of the Bible. Up until this point, Augustine thought that uh, the scriptures were too primitive. And if you read uh, the Genesis narratives, Augustine said, this seems like a simplistic and primitive way of understanding creation. But uh, uh, Ambrose opened up Augustine's eyes to the theological significance of the Bible. Uh, just to give you an example, if you read the days of creation, uh, it says that the world was created in six days, right? So when you say six days, maybe to have a day, you would think it takes uh, of what, a 24-hour cycle, right? So you have to have a sun and a moon in order to have a day, 24 hours. Well, um, as Augustine points out in one of his commentaries on Genesis, you don't have a sun and a moon until the fourth day. So what were the first three days? They can't mean a 24-hour cycle. And even the primitive Jews who were writing these scriptures knew that. You know, even these authors, they knew that you had to have a sun and moon to have 24-hour uh, day. So day must mean something else. So already we're starting to see that these scriptural narratives are more sophisticated, that they have a theological meaning to them, and they're not just a kind of primitive science. So Ambrose was able to open up Augustine's eyes to the sophistication of scripture and to the sophistication of, of 
uh, Christianity. And so Ambrose really was Augustine's spiritual father during this time. And um, in, eventually Augustine decided that he wanted to become baptized and become a Christian. So I'd say that Monica and Ambrose are two of the most important figures in Augustine's life. Monica for her prayers for Augustine and Ambrose for his teaching of Augustine, teaching Augustine how to read scripture and what it means to be a Christian. So Augustine then was baptized in the year 387, right around the age of 33. And um, it was then that he started to study Christianity and become very well acquainted with the scriptures, especially the readings of St. Paul. I think it was his reading of Paul that really helped him to grow as a Christian um, and uh, to start to develop a very rich, complex theology. And uh, his mother, unfortunately, died or also around the year 387, which was a, a very difficult moment in Augustine's life. Uh, but uh, the, the, next, the next very important event in Augustine's life is when he was ordained a priest in the year 391. Now, this is a funny story because Augustine was actually forcibly ordained. And uh, I, I remind my students of that because most of them are being trained to be ministers uh, in some Christian church. So I always tell them that maybe you've had this sim- a similar experience where you feel like you've been forced uh, into ministry. Well, uh, Augustine, after he was baptized in 387, he went on retreat and he wrote some speculative works of theology. They're heavily influenced by Platonic philosophy. Uh, but in the year 391, he returns to North Africa. And while he's at the, the liturgy, at the Mass, uh, the bishop, the local bishop, is saying that we need more young men who are willing to become priests. And the people who are in the church all know that Augustine is there. He's, he's still very famous at this time for his ability to speak. And he's famous because he has converted to Christianity. And they basically force him up to the altar. And they say, this, this man must become a priest. And so... Um, he ends up becoming ordained in the year 391, and from that point on, he lives as a pastor. And uh, that's very important when we study Augustine, to remember that he was a, a Christian pastor. So he was always engaged in the life of the church, and he was always concerned with what was going on uh, on the ground, so to speak, uh, among cr- Christians in the church and the people in the pews. A similar thing happens in 396. He's forcibly ordained to the episcopacy. He was named bishop in 396 as um, his, the, the local bishop uh, is on his deathbed. So in, th- in the year 396, Augustine becomes the coadjutor bishop of Hippo in North Africa. And from that point on until his death, some uh, 34 years later, he is a pa- he's a bishop. And uh, it's, I always like to remind my students that when you're reading these important theological works, Augustine is, on, is, a, is a bishop. And uh, it, being a bishop in the ancient world meant having many different kinds of responsibilities, both ecclesiastical and civil, because the local bishop in that day had to do things like settle disputes over land or property or uh, even uh, different kinds of marital disputes. So not only was he doing those kinds of uh, administrative duties, he was also engaged in teaching and preaching the faith. He would meet with the catechumens, the people who wanted to become Christians, sometimes for an hour a day. And then during the time of Lent leading up to Easter, he would meet with them for several hours. And he was also preaching. That was a very important aspect of being a bishop, was preaching the word. And Augustine is known to have preached sometimes on Sundays for six hours. So uh, that's quite amazing to to be at a, a Mass and just hear six hours of preaching uh, I think that some Protestants go on for quite a while, but I don't think any of them reach six hours nowadays. Well, that's um, impressive. Uh, and I thought yes. I was tough for doing three hours in a row today. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's right. But, uh, in my yes. classes, not preaching, no. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But uh, you know, during that time, what Augustine would be doing while he's preaching is basically exegeting the scriptures, that is, interpreting the scriptures. And so uh, many of his sermons exist today, and if you read them, you can see how they would last for quite a long time, because he goes through the passage, passages of Scripture, and he uh, basically unlocks them, he uh, mines them for all the mysteries that are hidden within them, and he opens them up for people to see. And so they're, they're really quite beautiful, and, and the Latin is also quite beautiful if you read it in the original languages. Of course, he, during this time, as you read his preaching, he's also speaking out to those with whom he is in debate. And so Augustine was engaged in debate with many different groups. As we know, during uh, this time in the early church, around the 4th and 5th centuries, 
Christianity was very diverse. So we find many different kinds of groups. It's a time when Christians are still, in, in many ways, finding their identities. And as it happens again and again in church history, uh, there are certain groups that will take a certain perspective or a reading of Scripture, and uh, they'll perhaps try to fit it according to different philosophies or different worldviews. And that's happening in North Africa as it is throughout the world. And we see it again even to this very day. You have different interpretations of the text and different interpretations of what it means to be a Christian. So among those most important groups in North Africa are the groups including the Manichaeans, uh, the Donatists, the Pelagians, as well as the Platonists. And perhaps I'll say a little bit more about each of them as we go along. But uh, just in brief, Augustine wrote against all of these different groups, and against them he tried to defend the doctrines of the Catholic Church. And so in this way, we can see Augustine as a great apologist, that is, someone who defended the Christian faith, and a great teacher, a theologian, a preacher, and a pastor. So um, he's engaged in constant debate with these kinds of groups throughout his life. Uh, another very important event that happens in, in Augustine's life that impacts his ministry is the fall of Rome in the year 410 to Alaric and the Goths. So uh, this is the fall of Rome, which is known as the Eternal City, and, and many people thought Rome would never fall. And in 410, uh, it, this Eternal City is actually sacked by the Goths, and this led to eventually to the invasion of North Africa and Hippo by the Goths as well as the Vandals. So when Augustine comes to the end of his life, as he's writing his major works, um, the Roman Empire is under siege, and uh, essentially it seems like the world around him is falling apart and coming to an end. So it's in this context that Augustine writes his very important work, The City of God, uh, which consists of 22 books, and it took him over 20 years to write. And as he comes to the end of his life, he says that human beings should put their hope in the city of God, not in the earthly city, not in any earthly kingdom, but in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And as he dies, uh, he he is writing then to Christians in this in this kind of a world where it seems like the world is falling apart. Um, interestingly, as he's on his deathbed, he asked to have the Psalms placed on the walls, posted on the walls, so that he could constantly pray them. And this is how he dies, praying the Psalms, uh, having the the word of God on his lips. And he dies uh, in the year 430 on August 28th. Um, having reached the age of uh, over just just around the year the age of seventy six or so. Excellent. So, a great summary of of Augustine's life that'll help us to kind of understand um, your book and its exploration of the mystery of the church. Right. So you're you're focusing yes. on ecclesiology. So yes, could you tell exactly. us? Um, you know, one thing you talk about in your book is that there's some problems to how people approach Augustine's ecclesiology. Could you, could you tell us briefly what those problems are and, and how you hope to overcome them through your work? Yes, thank you. Well, as I said, Augustine is widely considered the most influential theologian in the history of Christianity. And as uh, my old advisor used to say, if there, there's any theological issue that you've thought about, Augustine has probably already thought about it. And uh, one of these issues is the church. In other words, what does it mean um, to be the church and, and what is the nature of of the church. In, uh, now, as you can imagine, since Augustine is so influential throughout church history, many people have written on Augustine's thought and his theology, and many have written on his ecclesiology, particularly during the uh, 19th and 20th centuries. But as we get to the 21st century, there are actually very few who have revisited his ecclesiology and tried to understand uh, some other aspects of it. And some of the problems that you find in the readings of Augustine's understanding of the Church uh, include what I call certain reductive interpretations. That is, certain attempts to limit Augustine's views to uh, very specific ways of, of what it means to be the Church. And among, among these reductive interpretations is an attempt to reduce the Church to a purely invisible communion of believers. So um, this is sometimes spoken of as a, a platonic interpretation of Augustine, that is to say, uh, a view that heavily emphasizes Augustine's Platonism. Augustine was certainly a Platonist uh, in, in his early days, and even to the end of his life, he was heavily influenced by Platonic philosophy. But as I argue in the book, and as I think many scholars have shown in recent times, Augustine 
really transformed his own Platonic views. And while he certainly was still uh, influenced by Platonism toward the end of his life, uh, I, I think that he modifies his views in accordance with his reading of scriptures. So the proper way to understand Augustine is that he's a Christian theologian who uses Platonic philosophy in order to uh, articulate the mysteries of, of the Christian faith. And uh, Platonism, therefore, is at the service of his Christianity. And as a, a recent scholar of Platonism has also said, that Augustine has not so much rejected Platonism, but given a kind of alternative transcendentalism in his Christianity that draws upon Platonism. So what I've tried to do then is show this development of Augustine's thought and how that influences the development of his ecclesiology. Because in certain circles, there's been a common way of reading Augustine where he is a, sort of a purely Platonic thinker, and therefore his, his understanding of major Christian doctrines can fit into a Platonic framework. So to give you the example of the Church, then the Church can be un best understood as a purely invisible reality, a purely invisible communion of the predestined who make up the Church, and that's sort of the essence of the Church, or if you might, uh, you might say the Platonic ideal of the Church. And then over against this ideal, you have the visible manifestation of the church in history, uh, and that would include uh, the visible body, um, the, the community that gathers together to celebrate the sacraments, as well as the hierarchy, that is, the, uh, the, the orders of the church. So bishop, priest, and deacon, um, those would be some of the institutional aspects of the church, the visible church, as well as, of course, all the members of the church who gather together to celebrate the sacraments, especially baptism and Eucharist, and then who live a Christian life, a visible life of offering works of mercy. So that would be the visible aspect of the church. Now, if you were to fit that into a Platonic interpretation, you might say, and uh, this is the way many scholars in the 19th, 20th centuries understood Augustine, they would say that uh, the true church is that invisible ideal, and that's understood over against the visible reality. So the visible reality is a kind of distortion of the ideal. And in fact, uh, you can just, uh, as one scholar put it, you, you can and should discard that visible aspect in favor of the invisible communion of believers. Uh, at least this is one way of interpreting Augustine. And I try to show that that is not an adequate way of interpreting Augustine, that while he certainly is platonic and he certainly is influenced by this view, nevertheless, he tries to show the he tries to show the importance of the visible church, especially as his thought develops, as his thought matures, and as he begins to recognize the significance of living in a visible communion of believers, that is, uh, being engaged in a body uh, of, of believers in history, not just having a kind of interior communion with God apart from others, but being engaged in the church, visible in a local church, and what we might say today in a parish or in a congregation. So what I try to do is show the development of Augustine's thought from his earlier works to his more mature theology, and I try to show how uh, the, the development of this uh, thought sh uh, shows the importance of living in a, a communal body that is both visible and invisible. And uh, my book is the first one to trace the development of Augustine's ecclesiology from his early works to his later writings, and it's the first book on Augustine's theology of the church in English in over 50 years. Wow. <laughs> well, excellent. Well, and it's, uh, um, and it's a very good book. <laughs> oh, thank so, you. Thanks, Frank. And so if we move on then to look, look at more detail, how you do this, how you kind of challenge these, these yeah. views that try and, you know, as you said, to make it reductivist view, um, that play down the visible yes. aspects. Your first chapter mm -hmm. is on the mystery of the church. And, it's, yes. it, and this makes sense because you're looking particularly at Augustine's use of the ter Latin term mysterium yes. as well as sacramentum to refer to the yes. church. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us a little bit, what do those terms mean and what is yes. the importance of him using those two terms to talk about the church? Yes, thank you. So these two terms are, are both uh, used to, uh, they can both be translated for mystery, uh, but uh, according to the cognate sacramentum, um, that can also be translated as sacrament, right? This is what we use typically in our language of sacrament. Um, but in Augustine's works, mysterium and sacramentum, they can be used synonymously. 
But what I try to show is that Augustine's use of the term mysterium for mystery often carries with it what I call a, a kind of transcendent aspect. Um, in other words, uh, an aspect that transcends our visible limits of history. And what I do in this chapter is I try to show the etymological background for these terms, and I argue that the terms mysterium and sacramentum in Christianity come out of a Semitic background rather than a, a Greek philosophical one. In other words, uh, it comes from Paul's own interpretation of uh, musterion, which is grounded in a, a Jewish uh, understanding of mystery. And you find that in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew words for uh, the, the basis for mysterion, there are many of them. Uh, for Just to give you a couple examples, sod is an example of it um, in Hebrew. The, it, it, set, it, for, it forms a basis for mysterium, and it means something like God's plan for the definitive establishment of the kingdom. So in a Jewish setting, then, sod would mean something like God's plan to bring about the kingdom. So what I show, then, is that Paul uses mysterium in this sense, and he understands it to mean God's plan to bring about the fulfillment of the kingdom, which then leads to the mystery, which is Christ. So when Paul uses mysterium, he's off, or mysterion in the Greek, um, it often refers to the mysterion, which is Christ. Christ is the mysterion of God. So Christ fulfills God's plan for the kingdom. In the Latin cognate, then, when the early Latin fathers are reading scripture, they find in their Bibles that mysterium, mysterion in Greek, can be translated using both mysterium, the cognate, as well as sacramentum. So sacramentum then is sometimes used for that Greek mysterion in the New Testament. And what we find then, which I try to show, is that in Augustine's Bible, the Vetus Latina or the Old Latin Bible, a sacramentum is often used to indicate the visible aspects of that mystery. In other words, uh, the, the way in which that mystery, that transcendent mystery of God's plan is made visible in history. And in particular, uh, sacramentum is often used to talk about Christ's incarnation, so the way that Christ is made visible in history. And therefore, that understanding of the incarnation as the visible revelation of an invisible mystery provides the basis for Paul's understanding of the church as the body of Christ, as a visible body, which has a kind of invisible aspect of it as well. And so what Augustine does, I argue, is he takes up this kind of Pauline use of uh, mysterium, mystery, mystery, mystery language, mysterion in Greek, and he uses it then and interprets his own way to bring together the visible and invisible aspects. So he talks about the church as both mysterium and sacramentum. And when he uses sacramentum, he most often uses it to refer to the visible aspects of the church and uh, the way the church is present in history uh, as a visible body. So to give you an example of that, he'll often uh, say sacramentum to talk um, that he finds in Scripture. So um, Noah's Ark is a good example of this, and he says Noah's Ark is a, a sacramentum. It's a kind of a, a visible mystery, and then he says it, it indicates in many ways the sacramentum of the church, the church as a visible reality uh, gathered together as uh, many people in one body, and nevertheless, they will be perfectly. This church will be perfected um, in a transcendent sense as a mysterium, a transcendent mysterium, and this often indicates then uh, God's transcendent plan. But that transcendent plan, nevertheless, is made present in history in uh, the sacramentum of the church. And what I try to show is that while there's a distinction here between mysterium and sacramentum, and Augustine often uses them in distinct ways, nevertheless they still form part of the same mystery. So in other words, you can't separate them entirely or put one over against the other such that you can get rid of the visible aspects of the church. No, in fact, for Augustine, these form two poles of the same mystery, and you can never separate them. So that's essential to my argument because I'm trying to show that Augustine does not get rid of those visible aspects, but instead, actually, I argue, uh, places a greater emphasis on those visible aspects as his works uh, mature over time. 
Right. And, and one thing I think you, you showed very well in the book and you stated very well there was how all this, this connects, right? Mysterium and Sacramentum connects back to Christ. Mm-hmm. And that leads neatly into your second chapter where you look at the church as the body of Christ. Yes. So could you tell us, you know, you look over Augustine's works over a period of time and show how yes. he increasingly focused on the church as the body of Christ. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit more about why he does that and yes. the continued importance of the sacraments and his understanding? Yes. Well, I, I think that if you're going to look at why Augustine places greater emphasis on the church as the body of Christ, I think you have to look at his reading of St. Paul. And again, I think uh, his reading of Paul is, is very important especially during the 390s when he's uh, becoming a priest and eventually a bishop. This is when his, what I call his mature theology, begins to develop, especially by the year 396 when he's writing his major works like the Confessions as well as the City of God and works like On the Trinity. This is what uh, his mature theology has developed. And he begins to rely heavily on Paul. And the idea of the church as the body of Christ is based, in many ways, upon the letters of Paul, especially 1 Corinthians, when Paul speaks about the church as one body with many members. And also in the book, uh, his letter to the Colossians, Paul will say that the, the mystery of the church, and he'll say it's the mystery that means you. So, uh, in other words, he's showing that the church is a mystery, sacramentum, uh, precisely as a body, the body of Christ, which has many members. And I would have to say that this this pastoral aspect of Augustine is also very important. We have to remember that he was a bishop by the year 396. And he began, I argue that he began to see the importance of being a Christian in a community. In other words, it's not enough to be a Christian and to live in isolation from others and say, well, I love God in my heart and, and that's all that matters. And when I go home, you know, I know in my heart interiorly that I'm a good person. So all that it matters, all that matters about being a Christian, about being a member of the church, is that I praise God in my heart. That I go home and maybe I, I do worship alone. You know, maybe I take my guitar out and I sing some praise and worship songs to God, and that, that, that's what Christian worship is all about. And uh, you know, there it is. You know, I'm I'm a Christian. Um, that's not satisfactory for Augustine. That is not sufficient. And another analog to this is sort of the philosophical approach to our ascent to God, which would say that the way to ascend to God is by turning inward, by looking at yourself interiorly and seeing that you're a spiritual being, and then rising to God by this inward ascent. This is the platonic ascent to God, which uh, initially Augustine is very much uh, attracted to because he sees that the Christian life requires an interiority, and he never leaves behind this kind of interiority but what I try to show in this chapter and in, in, in my book is that Augustine begins to recognize the Im- influence and the significance of exteriority, that, that the, the Christian life can't be reduced to simply a kind of interior, inward turn, but it must also proceed outward. It must become exterior, and it must be evident by participating in a visible ecclesial community, that is, by participating in the church. And uh, this is perhaps best seen in an example in the book, The Confessions, which is Augustine's spiritual autobiography. It is the book that I first read, uh, first introduced me to the writings of Augustine. And it's a book that I think every educated person should read because um, it is just a classic in all of Western literature. Uh, And in The Confessions, it's Augustine's story about how he had turned away from God, how he had fallen due to his own pride and his own sin, but God raised him up that God's grace uh, converted him and uh, basically redeemed him and led him to true happiness. It's, it's in this work where Augustine says that our hearts are restless until they rest in God. We only find our true happiness in God. Well, in the conversion sequence uh, in Book 8, Augustine uh, speaks about all these many different c- Christians who had converted. And what's fascinating about Augustine's own conversion in the con- Confessions is that it's prompted by him hearing stories of other Christians who converted. So as I like to point out, even though the grace of God works inwardly, it is mediated exteriorly. That is, Augustine has to hear the stories of other Christians, so it's mediated by a community. And he hears of all these different Christians who are converted, Ponticianus, Amplicianus, Marius Victorinus, and then these two court officials, and then they are converted because they read of the life of St. Anthony. So it's all these stories of conversion 
that eventually leads to Augustine's conversion. But among them is Marius Victorinus, who is a, a very famous public official. And he uh, tells Simplicianus, uh, a famous Christian at the time, he says that I have become a Christian. And Simplicianus says to him, well, if you're a Christian, then why aren't you in church on Sundays? You know, why aren't you there at the liturgy? And he says, well, I'm a Christian in heart. The, is it the walls that make a Christian? And the, that's a very famous uh, quote, you know, do, do the walls make a Christian? But to that, Simplicianus says, no, it's not the walls that make a Christian, but it is your confession of faith, and it is participating in a community. So Victorinus decides to go to church, and he is baptized and becomes part of the, the church. I think hearing that story was very important for Augustine, because he realized he, too, needed to be baptized. He, too, needed to live in an ecclesial community, a visible community. So by the time he starts writing his mature works in the year 396, when he's already a a priest and has just ordained a bishop, he begins to see the importance of living in a visible community, a visible body of believers, and engaging in that ecclesial life, a communal life, and a life that um, is not just inward but is outward and also leads to exterior works of mercy, that is, loving one's neighbor, um, the spiritual works of mercy, what we call spiritual works and corporal works of mercy, uh, loving our neighbor in true charity. Excellent, excellent. So what's kind of curious then is, right, is that in the third chapter then of your book, you talk yes. about the church as the bride of Christ, and yes. that's a little confusing, mm -hmm. um, because <laughs> how can the church be both Christ and his bride? Yes. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that, and also, in particular, what because you bring in this idea of eschatology, yes, and how that how to connect them. So, I wonder if you could tell yes. us also about how that fits in, and it, and what eschatology is for people who who might not be familiar with the term. Yes, thank you. So, Augustine, in my third chapter, I take up this image of the church as the bride of Christ, and once again, this is a Pauline image, an image that Saint Paul uses, and he brings it together along with the image of the church as the body of Christ, and he does so. Precisely by asking the question, well, what is it that happens when uh, the bride and bridegroom are united? Well, when the two are united, they become one body. So uh, this is a famous verse in Ephesians chapter 5, where it says, I speak to you of a great mystery, and the mystery is Christ and the church. And he's talking also about the, the mystery of marriage. But uh, the, the primary mystery he's talking about here is the mystery of Christ and the church, how they become one body. So the church then is the bride of Christ, and it is united to Christ in order to become the, uh, the one body with him. So it's another way of showing our union with Christ, uh, which takes place by means of becoming a member of Christ's body. Uh, so uh, the image of body and bride are actually brought together, I think, in a very beautiful way to talk about our union with Christ. And uh, as I said, in, in the as I show in the second chapter, this idea of the church as the body of Christ has with it certain visible aspects because um, to be a member of the body of Christ means to be a member of an ecclesial community that is engaging in uh, ecclesial life in history. And in the same way, to be a member of the bride of Christ is also to participate in a living community that's celebrating the sacraments, especially the sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist. When we celebrate the sacrament of baptism— um, as, as Paul says, we are uh, now we now die to ourselves. We are buried with Christ, and we rise to new life with Christ. And so Augustine, like Paul, interprets baptism as a means of being incorporated into the one body of Christ, becoming a member of the body of Christ. And then also he understands that when we receive the sacrament of the Eucharist, that union with Christ is deepened. And when we receive the Eucharist, we're participating in the marriage feast of the bride and the bridegroom that is between Christ and the church. And in uh, the book of Revelation, this is another famous image of um, uh, the, the celebration of Christian liturgy as a kind of wedding feast. So it's the wedding feast of the Lamb, with Christ as a Lamb of God. And Augustine picks up on this, and he says that, when we celebrate um, the liturgy of the Eucharist, that is when we're at Mass celebrating liturgy of the Eucharist, uh, we are celebrating the, the wedding feast of the bride and the bridegroom. Now, uh, what's fascinating about this, this image, and what I think is really important to my argument in this book, 
in showing that uh, the the visible aspect of the church is is important for Augustine is that uh, this image of the church as bride is both historical and eschatological. And when I say eschatological, uh, eschatology, it comes from the Greek eschaton, which basically means the end times. And uh, eschatology means what will happen at the very end of time when Christ comes again. So when we speak of eschatology, we're speaking of, uh, in many ways, what I said before, that transcendent aspect of the church, namely uh, the, the fulfillment of God's plan for the kingdom. So eschatology has to do with the end times when Christ comes again and the kingdom of God is perfectly fulfilled. What Augustine does very interestingly with this image of the church as the bride of Christ is he uses it in an eschatological fashion, uh, that is to talk about the church as bride, as a perfect bridegroom, uh, sorry, as a perfect uh, bride to the bridegroom of Christ. And uh, this is based largely in his reading of Song of Songs. But what he also does is he also uses this image of bride to talk about the church in history, the church while it's on pilgrimage, you might say. This is a famous way that Augustine talks about the church. The church is like a a pilgrim who's on a journey on the way to our heavenly homeland. So um, he very explicitly talks about the church as the bride uh, going through a process of trials and therefore being more and more conformed to Christ and becoming more and more beautiful and more and more and more united to her bridegroom. So what Augustine does then is he uses the image of bride both in an historical sense and an eschatological sense. And what I'm trying to do is is show that he holds these two together. Um, what some scholars have done in the past is they've only seen the image of bride in an eschatological sense, and they've left behind this historical sense. But what I try to show is that Augustine uses both of them, and that it's, it's very important that he holds them together, because that shows how the church is both visible and historical, as well as transcendent and invisible and eschatological. Wow, <laughs> that's really cool. Uh, <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> so... um then that moves us into going on to chapter four. And you'd mentioned this earlier, yes. but Augustine has this book called the, or rather 22 books called the city of God. Yes. And he talks about two cities. And I, I wish you could tell us what he means by those two cities. And what is the relationship between the church and the city of, and the city that he refers to as the city of God? Yes. Thank you. So this idea of the two cities uh, really comes from scripture. It comes from uh, the two cities that we find in uh, the Old Testament, the cities of Jerusalem, which is often spoken of um, as the, the, the city of God. Uh, St. Paul actually talks about this in Galatians as uh, the heavenly city, our mother, uh, the city of the heavenly city of Jerusalem. And then the other city is Babylon. And uh, Babylon in the Old Testament, of course, uh, for those of you who maybe aren't as familiar with Old Testament, uh, Babylon was the place where the Israelites were sent into exile. So um, Babylon then is taken as sort of the antithesis, you might say, of Jerusalem. If Jerusalem is the city of God, the place where the temple was for the ancient Israelites, well, Babylon is the place of exile. So it's sort of taken up as the the uh, the, the earthly city that is oppressing the city of God. Uh, Augustine then begins to develop this theme of the two cities in, in some of his interpretations of Scripture, and then around the, in the th- in year 390s, as he's writing some of his, scripture, his interpretations on scripture, commentaries uh, on Genesis and other works, he decides that he wants to write a full-length book on this theme. And that's what becomes uh, the book, The City of God, which he begins in the 400s and doesn't complete until the year 430. Um, and he decides to basically take up this theme of the two cities as a, a kind of structure in which he can uh, fill out the rest of his theology. So uh, as my, one of my old advisors used to say, the city of God seems like Augustine just sat down and wrote everything that came to his mind. Uh, but it's, it's actually much more structured than that. While he, he does cover many different topics, now, the first 10 books of the, of the city of God is a, a kind of deconstruction of the earthly city. The earthly city meaning uh, any kind of human kingdom that's set up in, in opposition to the kingdom of God or the heavenly city. And this can be identified as, uh, in, in many ways, different empires. So he uses the Roman Empire as an example of this. 
even though it's not only the Roman Empire that's an earthly city, but um, it, it's any city, it's any uh, kingdom that's set up against the city of God. Uh, Babylon and, and ancient Babylon would be a good example of that as well. So the first 10 books of the city of God is a kind of deconstruction of this earthly city, and it shows that the people of earthly city are ruled by their pride. That is, they, they try to show themselves as uh, greater than God, as more humble than God, more gracious than God. They set themselves in opposition to God, whereas the next uh, 11, actually the next 12 books of the city of God are devoted to a construction of theology about this heavenly city of God, which is the kingdom of God, um, and which Augustine identifies as the church. So the church is the city of God on pilgrimage in this time. So the church then is on pilgrimage to her heavenly homeland. And again, this is a way, an image that I use to show how uh, the church has both visible and invisible aspects. The church is the eschatological city of God, that perfect city, which will be fully revealed in all its glory at the end time. But it's also the visible church on earth as a pilgrim undergoing a journey to her heavenly homeland. And that includes uh, the visible body of the church, that is the institutional church, which consists of the, the, the priests, the bishops, the deacons who are celebrating the sacraments, as well as the laity, the, the communal body that is gathering together to celebrate those sacraments, and as well as the, the transcendent, invisible communal reality and uh, united by charity. And Augustine uh, famously says that in the end, there are only two kinds of people. There are those who love uh, themselves more than God, and those are the members of the earthly city or the city of Babylon, and those are the ones who ultimately will be in perdition. Those are the reprobate, uh, those who are condemned to hell. Or there, there are those who love God more than themselves, and those are the members of the heavenly city of Jerusalem. Those are the members of the body of Christ and the members of the church who will be united with God and be united uh, pre precisely through the church. They will be united to Christ as a member of the body of Christ. And then they will, if by the grace of God they persist, they will then be united with God for all of eternity. And that is the heavenly city. So there are only two kinds of people, those who love God uh, more than themselves or those who love themselves more than God. Excellent. Well, and that's a, a very stark but but uh, accurate way of putting it. <laughs> um, I, yes. I, I I have to question which camp I'm in. Um, <laughs> yes, in a sense. But uh, <laughs> good question to so, constantly reminding ourselves, right? Exactly. Yes. Now, one thing when I when I read your book, I was used to a lot of these these kinds of terms like the church's body of Christ, church's yeah. bride of Christ, and so forth. But the, your fifth and kind of final chapter before the conclusion is the church's sacrifice. And yes. I, I didn't really think about that. So mm. could you tell us a little bit more about what he means by the church being yes. a sacrifice? Yes, this is an important uh, theme that Augustine uh, takes up and from his early works to his later works. And there, isn't been, there hasn't been a whole lot of research that's been done on this theme. But what I noticed as I began to study Augustine, as I began to work more and more with the primary sources, is how often Augustine uses the language of sacrifice to talk about the church. And I wanted to go through his early works and into his more mature works to show how this idea develops. Because by the time you get to the 10th book of the City of God, uh, Augustine has this very famous uh, section. It's, it's in uh, Book 10, Chapter 6, where he talks about the church as the true sacrifice of Christians. And He's talking specifically about the sacrifice that takes place at the Eucharist. This is the true worship of Christians and the true sacrifice of Christians. And um, this is in the context of understanding how the church is different than the, the pagan Romans. And what he's trying to do in this section of City of God is show why uh, the Christianity is a unique religion and why um, the Christianity should continue uh, even though the, it's the case, remember, it's the case that the, the Roman uh, Empire has fallen. So he's basically defending the Christian church, and he's trying to show how Christians are different than the Romans. And what he does is that he basically shows how uh, Christianity uh, offers true worship, uh, the true worship that you cannot find in Platonism or paganism, because 
Paganism is a series of, of false worship to false gods. The whole Roman pantheon is a series of, of false gods. In fact, Augustine famously identifies these false gods as demons. So the pagans are actually offering demon worship, whereas Christians offer true worship, the true worship of the one true God. Now, the Platonists are a kind of unique case because uh, the Platonists can see that God alone is our true happiness, and th- that's a truth, but they don't have the way to get to God. What Christians offer in their worship by means of worshiping God is the way to get to God, and that way is through Christ, because Christ is the one who offers true worship to God by offering his own sacrifice on the cross. So what Augustine is showing in Book 10 is that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is what you might call the locus of true worship. It's the, it's the place on the cross where human beings finally offer the perfect worship to God. Christ himself offers the perfect worship to God because his sacrifice is the perfect worship to God, the perfect act of praise to God. And when Christians celebrate the Eucharist, what they are doing is they are offering this sacrifice to God. They are representing this sacrifice. It's not that the sacrifice is happening again and again and again. It's more that that transcendent mystery of Christ's sacrifice is made present at the liturgy. This is why the priest, when the priest uh, offers the sacrifice, is actually offering Christ himself, uh, the the head, who is coming to us in the form of a victim, in the form of a a lamb being offered uh, on the on the cross, and what Augustine says then in, in Book Ten is that uh, Christ is the true priest who is offering Himself in this Christian worship. But then what He does is is very important here. He then says that the true sacrifice of Christians includes the heavenly city of God, who is offering praise to God in heaven. So you might say that's the invisible aspect of the church, the city of God offering true worship. And it also includes the visible body on earth offering the the liturgy, the Eucharistic worship, um, by means of celebrating the Eucharist. So this is the this Eucharistic sacrifice is the moment when heaven and earth are brought together, precisely by the worship that's being offered um, in the in the visible church. And then Augustine famously uh, he cites Romans again. He cites uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, where it says that. Uh, the, the church's many members offering herself as a sacrifice. And in Romans 12, do not be conformed to your world, but offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. And what he says then is that the church is the sacrifice. And the church offers herself at the Eucharistic worship. So what happens when we go to the Eucharistic altar is we are actually offering ourselves as members of the body of Christ and as part of the perfect worship of God, because when Christ offers himself to the Father, it includes not only himself as head, but also his body, that is the church. So whenever we go to the liturgy, to the Eucharistic worship, we offer ourselves as part of that perfect offering to God, as the sacrifice that is pleasing to God. So uh, Augustine says then, what you offer in that sacrifice is yourself. Uh, The church offers herself as the perfect sacrifice. Um, What I show then is that in Augustine's mature works, this notion of sacrifice, this liturgical understanding of sacrifice is a way to bring together the visible and invisible aspects of the church, uh, which is both the transcendent mystery, the city of God, as well as the visible body. And in the first part of that chapter, I show that when Augustine speaks of sacrifice in his earlier works, his more philosophical works, he's talking about this kind of interior sacrifice of the heart. By the time we get to Book 10 of City of God, he retains that interior aspect of the heart, but then he turns outward or exteriorly, and he shows that that sacrifice is offered by the visible church at the Eucharistic altar, the sacrifice of Christians that is made every single day at the Eucharistic altar. So it's a way of bringing together that visible aspect along with the invisible aspect and uniting them at the altar so that the church is herself the perfect sacrifice that's being offered precisely as the body of Christ. Excellent. Well, that's very well put. Oh, thank so you. So that, that, that brings us then to your conclusion. Yes. And I mean, you know, we always, even though Augustine is a, a very ancient um, thinker, yes. uh, you know, it, it's, it's, you're writing a book that you hope will, will say something to people today about someone from a, from a very long time ago. So what message is it do you think Augustine's ecclesiology has for Christians today? 
That's a great question. And this is certainly what I always try to do um, in, in my own uh, teaching and research is I try to show the significance of early Christianity for contemporary Christianity for the church today. And I like to show that uh, I, I like to argue that Augustine it, it has many things to say to us today. Um, and, and important among them, first and foremost, Augustine shows us that Christianity is not a religion that takes place in isolation. That is, we don't become Christians, we don't uh, become united to God by isolating ourselves from others. But Christianity, in its essence, is a communal uh, body. It's a communal religion. And the church, by essence, is a communal body of believers. It is not uh, individuals who ascend to God by turning inward in a kind of platonic fashion. Uh, it is not simply reducible to uh, a collection of individuals who go off on their own and worship in their own bedrooms apart from others. No, the, the church is a communal body united by offering a communal worship at the Eucharistic altar and also by loving their neighbors, by loving God and loving their neighbors. So to be a Christian uh, means to live a life of charity, uh, a life that is the love of God as well as love of neighbor. And that will lead to exterior works as well. That is, it will lead to the love of God and love of neighbor, what Augustine will say are, are works of mercy. And this, and, and for the early church, that meant uh, taking care of orphans and taking care of widows, taking care of the poor. And these are all things that Christians ought to be doing to this very day. Uh, it should be an essential aspect of the church to offer a, a life of, of mercy and a love of neighbor, a love of the poor, a love of orphans and widows. So I think that's something that we can take from uh, Augustine's thought on the church. And I would also say another very important aspect of uh, Augustine's ecclesiology is his understanding of the Christian life as a life of healing. And uh, this is a life of healing that takes place, again, in community. Uh, Augustine uses the famous image of uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan to talk about what it means uh, to be a part of the church. So in the parable of the Good Samaritan, you'll recall that uh, there's a, someone who's beaten uh, by robbers and left for dead on the road. And uh, a priest walks by and leaves him there, and, and, and other people walk by. But the Samaritan, who is kind of a, uh, uh, someone who's ostracized from the community, he stops and he binds the wounds of the wounded man with wine and oil. And Augustine says those are the sacraments of the church, baptism and Eucharist. And we are like the, the, the wounded man. And so Christ is the good Samaritan who heals us with the sacraments. And then Christ picks up the wounded man and he brings them to the inn. And Augustine says the inn is the church. That's where we're being healed. And then uh, the good Samaritan leaves a, a twofold denarii, that is the two coins. And Augustine says that's the twofold love of God and neighbor. And what's happening in the church is that we're being healed by the life of charity, the twofold love of God and neighbor. That's what heals us. So to be a, a Christian means to undergo a healing that takes place by living in a communal body and a, a body that's necessarily visible. That is a body that has a, a local parish, that has a local community, and that participates in the sacraments, especially baptism and Eucharist, which mediates grace and thereby heals us. And then we're also healed by works of mercy, by works of charity. And it's by doing that that we undergo our, our own healing. And um, uh, what I also, an important part of that is to show that all of us are in need of healing. That is, we're all wounded. And so we all are sick, and we all therefore need to undergo some kind of healing. It's a, it's a process. We're on a journey together as the city of God. Um, and we may not reach absolute perfection in this life, but we are nevertheless making progress. So what I, I, argue, what I show in my conclusion I, I quote this Augustinian scholar named Robert Marcus, who says that Augustine makes room for the mediocre Christian in the church. And I like that phrase because I think what he's trying to show is that you don't have to be an elitist or you don't have to be absolutely perfect in everything to be a Christian. But what you do have to do is participate in a communal body whereby you are being healed so that you, you are making progress in the Christian life. But that progress takes place not in isolation, not on your own but precisely by being part of a visible communal body and thereby receiving the healing through the sacraments and through a life of charity that is necessary in order to reach perfection, in order to become a member of the heavenly city of God.
Oh, excellent. I'm, I'm glad to hear there's room for mediocre Christians. I, I've yes. got a chance there. So, <laughs> you and me um, both, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, we've already taken a lot of your time, but I'd like to end. take a little bit more to end with our traditional question. What are you working on now? Yes. So for my next project, uh, I'm working on further study of ecclesiology among the Latin fathers. So I'm going to figures before Augustine of people like Tertullian and Cyprian and Ambrose, and I'm trying to explore how they understand what it means to be the church. And then I'm going to look at Augustine again, and then I'll probably go past him and look at figures like Leo the Great and then Gregory the Great. And this book is going to be a, a kind of comparative analysis of the ecclesiologies of the early Latin fathers. And um, as is the case with Augustine, it's very difficult to study the ecclesiology of the Latin fathers because they don't have any treatises that are devoted solely to the church. There's nothing called De Ecclesia or anything like that in the early church. So what you have to do is you have to uh, read all of their works very carefully and try to show some development in their thought, as I've done with Augustine. So what I'm going to do for this next book project is I'm going to try to do the best that I can to synthesize uh, all of these writings from these figures and then try to show a general trajectory of what it means to be a member of the church. And uh, this is a, a book project that's going to be called The Church and the Latin Fathers. I've, I've already signed a contract with Fortress Press, the same uh, press that published my book on Augustine. And uh, I'm hoping to show that this ecclesiology develops over time and uh, that we can show this kind of gradual development as we go from Tertullian all the way through Gregory the Great. Oh, excellent. Well, that sounds interesting. And please do keep me updated with it. I will. Thank you very much for, for being with us today, and thank you for our listeners. To I hope you enjoyed this uh, this examination of the book, and I would encourage you to, to, to go out and get it because there's a lot of richness that we weren't able to cover. Thank you very much, Frank. Right. Thanks for having me. This has been the Christian Studies Channel of the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Franklin Roush of Lander University, the host of the channel. I want to thank you for listening to this interview, and I hope you'll come back and listen to another one soon.